Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. Yes. Yay! Yay. We're back. Yay, Yay. we're back. We're back. We're back. We're back back with a fun show. More monsters, ghosts, UFOs, all the good stuff with our guest, Chad Lewis. Adventures in the Paranormal with Scott and Amber. Yes. And what adventures did you have this week, Scott? (laughs) With the paranormal? No. With Uh, the very real. With the very, very real. Cats. What? Did I forget something? You this trapped week? your first cat. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Well, it we did have it more bummed me out. Okay, well, yeah, that was, but that, well, that was actually last week, um, but it's this week, so we'll talk about it. Yeah, we've had. Well, I don't know if everybody knows the story of how we. You've seen everybody who listens to the show has seen our our beloved cats Rollins and Binks. Um, we told the story of how Rollins came here. He came from a farm with some friends, uh, but the story of Binks and I'll keep it brief. Last summer here on our property, uh, our adjacent neighbors had some uh, had well. We know there's some cats living in under some neighbors. Patios, yeah, and then we some, had a bounty of kittens. We had we had a bunch of kittens a, appeared in different parts of the yard on different days and different stages, and like, different neighbors. Yeah, just different neighbors. So, and they all go to Scott because Scott volunteers for the Michigan Cat Rescue. He collects cans. Yeah, and we do you know a little bit of rescue work here too. So I got those and was able to rehome and well, yeah, get them get them more or less adopted, rehomed for yeah. five. The first five, and then the sixth <laughs> one. I was out on the phone uh, yeah. at night talking, and I hear, just, yeah, just, just yelling. the scream, just and I'm yelling. like, oh god, another yeah. one. And honestly, I was, I was like, ready to just go, eh, like that kitten's on its own. Like yeah. I sort of sort of had that feeling at this moment because I'm like, what do we do? Like, who, what, what? I don't know. Maybe it's just going to be another feral cat running around the neighborhood. I don't know. Yeah. But there was something about the cat. I didn't want to give up on it, and then it ran under the wood pile. And, and that the was the next, next day, morning. Yeah, that was and it a, got it was cold, cold that night. Cold. It got down to the forties, and this thing's just a little nugget. It's just a little kitten, a little nugget. And then you, I had to crawl down on the ground yeah. and get in the mud, and I saw her under a, as Amber said, a yeah. wood shelf I had back there for firewood. And um, you were able to pull her out. I was able to pull her out and put her in a cage. Yep. So, and the idea with that too was, I already had called the rescue and said, "Hey, I have come another kitten. Up. You want to come pick her up?" And at the time, I, I, I just knew she was a female. There just was something, because we were arguing about that. Like, it's probably a boy. I'm like, I, it's a little girl. And and I did, of course, do a little Googling on that and say, you know, what's a girl look like? So I'm like, yeah, I look back there. I'm like, that's a little girl. So I held on to her that day, and I was working in my office, and I had her in there just kind of roaming around, just, well, just hanging out. and then you out. put her on your chest and she made biscuits. And I didn't you sent me the put video. her on my chest. She jumped on my shoulder and uh, fell asleep. Uh. She jumped on my, she was that small. She jumped on my shoulder while I was in a meeting and she just fell asleep. And I'm like, oh boy. And then that's when, she, yeah, she came over. I think I did pick, you know, pick her off, off of my uh, shoulder and put her on my chest. And that's when she started in the biscuit thing. Uh. So I'm like, oh God. And, I, and you, and I, you and I talked because you were like, well, I like her energy. Yeah. She's cool. The other ones were cool, but she I really like this one's yeah. energy. Uh, so, yeah, with you, anyway. you were at work, and I already, yeah. so I pulled the trigger and said, okay, we're going to keep yeah. her. So, that being said, as much as we're really happy to have Binks in the house, and, and she's grown now, and she's getting bigger, and she's nothing but hilarity and fun, and we love her to death, um, I don't want to have another Batch of, batch of kittens so out there. So we have to do the trap and release yeah. where you just get them spayed or neutered. Yeah. And 
we were worried because you put the cage out. We caught, which we believe is Binks's dad. We're pretty sure we caught Binks's uh, dad. Spitting image of each other. Yeah, they and look exactly alike. You sit there and go, what if this cat's really nice? And he's like, I just want a little home. Would you please take me into your home? Oh, well, yeah. And I caught him. I, you know, I got up about six o'clock in the morning that day and went out there and saw, saw him in the trap. So thankfully, I had everything lined up to take him to the proper place to have to have this the surgery done. Um, and yeah, he was scared, and I was actually petting him through the I cage. Know, that's he what seemed, I was worried. He seemed oh god, he's calm. docile. He seemed calm, well, and we, we had to keep they had to keep him overnight. They they did the operation. Yeah. They keep him overnight, so I had to come back the next morning and pick him up. And the idea was to keep him, uh, you know, keep him for like another day. They said we could we could have let him go in the evening yeah. on Friday if we wanted to. Because uh, it's just a little incision they make. It's not well, really Well, we major. have a Florida room, but it, the windows, if we close them, there's no screens. Yeah, so it gets a little... <laughs> and it was warm out, so I'm like, this, we got to keep an eye on him because I don't want yeah. him suffocating in there. Well, the thing that happened also was <sighs> I brought the cage in there out of the car, and I didn't want him locked up in the cage. That's why I wanted to put him in the floor room so he could walk around. We put a blanket out there. We put some litter out there. We put food and water out there for well, him. So he, of course, he we, goes and hides underneath a black well, no, that's, canvas. That's underneath. after he goes completely ape shit well, crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I forgot about that part. Yeah, because he, he was sitting there, and I, I was telling people this over the weekend. I'm like, you remember that scene from uh, Jurassic Park where the guy sees the little velociraptor? Like, it was a little cute little velociraptor thing. And the guy was like, oh, you're so cute. You're so nice. And then the thing's face just explodes and, like, just go, it goes nuts. That's literally, <laughs> I was petting this cat through the cage, and he was sitting there looking at me. He looked very calm, very cool. And then he just exploded out of the little the little trap cage and just started just ripping the Florida room to shreds, I'm just pretty, knocking stuff all yeah. over the place, all over the floor. When I had to go get him from under the cat. tarp, I'm pretty sure I witnessed that cat walk sideways on walls. Yeah, like, he was he was jumping six seven feet. It was insane. So then I was like, we have to open the doors now and yeah. let this cat yeah, out. And that's what you were saying. He was trying to hide under the the, and the he's grill free, tarp. He's gonna get hurt. Well, he, he was trying to hide under the grill tarp, and it was like just hot. And yeah. we were afraid he was just gonna suffocate himself out of fear. Well, so we just let him go. Yeah. Long um, story short, we 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 got ugh. one cat down. Maybe a couple more to go. Who I'm knows? Pretty sure he came back that night because he had not really had a meal in a day and a half or two days. And I'm pretty sure, because we put food out for cats in, in the front of the house, and I'm pretty sure he came out that night. He's We're staying away, which I expect him to, uh, but I'm pretty sure he came and ate a whole bowl of food. He was hungry. He ate a ton of food. So uh, he's all right, but we have a couple more I think we have to do the same thing with. But, yeah, that's our first one we did. Yeah, and, and if you have poo, cans boy. and live in Michigan, especially the metro Detroit area, and you don't really like going and turning them in, consider donating them to the Michigan Cat Rescue. Yeah, you can reach out to us here even at, at Ghostly Talk, uh, ghostlytalk at ghostlytalk.com, contact at ghostlytalk.com. There's a lot also. of people that can't stand returning cans yeah, and would and rather our rescues, just someone yeah, pick them up. Our rescues more than happy to come pick those up from you and cash those in and take those and put them directly to the vet bills that these cats need. So, yeah, check that out. But that was our first adventure in TNR. Yeah. Which was, yeah, yeah that was, we'll do better next time. I, we, you, uh, I think we did the best we could. The other thing you were excited about is the new, I want to see the new James Wan Space Hubble. <laughs> that's not right. That's not right. That's, a, that's the whore director. <laughs> the James Webb Telescope. Okay, James Webb. They dropped, yeah. they dropped some really gnarly pictures yesterday. It's amazing. Uh, and some of the, I'm sure anybody who listens to this show has may have seen some of these already. They but could be gone too, because you know, with light travel, they're like, oh, this is like 1.3 billion year old light. 
So who knows if we're even looking at it's well, well it looks yeah. different now, but we can't see it that way. Yeah, but there's some pretty wild stuff. The James Webb Telescope. This is a project with NASA also, by the way. Yeah. You know, and it's a funny thing. I've been seeing a lot of people wearing NASA shirts. I've been no- I noticed <laughs> when I was at the Maryland Death Fest in Baltimore uh, about a what month and a half ago, I saw no less than a half dozen people wearing NASA shirts. Start interviewing them. You know, and I'm just, but I any, everywhere I'm going, because we're starting to get out more and more these days, I see people wearing NASA shirts, which I think are NASA, 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 NASA. NASA shirts. NASA shirts. NASA, NASA shirts. shirts. Um, so, yeah, super cool stuff, though. And some of these pictures are just mind-blowing. I think it's, They're something, gorgeous. So, I think it's something to continue to look forward to. Google, um, Google the uh, uh, Google you, James Webb Telescope, or even go to the NASA site. You can go to the NASA website, nasa.gov. I, I posted it on our Facebook Ghostly Talk page. Oh, my God. It's like the first post we made there in a while. Yeah. We were just got done telling our guests we had tonight how crappy we are yeah. with social media. Why don't we talk about our guest? Let's Amber. talk about our guest. Our guest is someone who I have seen on... Uh, TV. I've listened to him on podcasts. Uh, he's got the gift of gab, so I knew he'd be great on the show. And Chad Lewis, he lives in Wisconsin. He's a researcher, author, and lecturer on topics of the strange and unusual. His bachelor and master's work is in the field of psychology, and for nearly 30 years, he has traveled the glove. I wrote the glove. The glove. The globe in search of unique and bizarre stories in history. You can learn more about him at www.chadlewisresearch.com, and of course, you can follow him on social media, look him up on YouTube, and search his name and find him on a host of other podcasts out there. But we had a blast talking to Chad Lewis about the Wendigo, about the Van Meter Visitor, about monsters and ghosts and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, forgive me, my brain stopped a couple times because that just happens. I feel I feel I feel slower <laughs> tonight. Too. I know I don't know. Maybe it's the the crab boil we ate earlier. The that was some good food. The fish boil, whatever we ate. It's a shrimp boil. Shrimp boil. Shrimp boil. Shrimp boil. I don't know, but we had a blast talking to Chad Lewis. So enjoy our show with Chad Lewis. Around 30 years of exploring the paranormal, Chad Lewis has investigated everything from haunted locations, UFOs, spook lights, monsters, and more. So when you have someone like Chad Lewis on the show, you don't really know what to talk about because you can talk about everything. And in fact, I think when he sent us an email, he's like, just look at my books. There's lots of stuff to talk about. And I was like, yep. Mm-hmm. We're in deep. Where problem. do I start? <laughs> Where do I start? And... I always do a little research on people before we do a show, Mm -hmm. and when I Googled Chad, Chad, uh, did you realize that you are also a former American football tight end for the Philadelphia Eagles? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Greetings. Yes, I've received a lot of uh, emails and uh, correspondence from people looking to have their football memorabilia signed, and I'm always happy to oblige. (laughs) I saw that, and obviously your name is the same as a football player out there, but I love that Google links it to learn more at chadlewisresearch.com. So it leads 
leads people straight to your stuff. So thank you so much for being on the show. I know we're going to talk about all kinds of awesome stuff. I'm excited and um, I'm in the Northwoods of Wisconsin where things are always exciting. So I'm uh, excited to be here and uh, see how weird it gets. We're not too far away from you. We're in the wilds of Metro Detroit. Yeah, the main streets. <laughs> the main streets. Okay. So kind of your Michigan neighbor. I have a handful of your books in front of me. Right now I have The Big Muddy Monster. I have Paranormal Minnesota, which I think is one of your, I think it's your newest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ghosts, Monsters, and UFOs. And then I'm holding a very creepy book called Wendigo Lore, Monsters, Myths, and Madness that you co-wrote with Kevin Lee Nelson. And this is the first book I purchased from you. I purchased, purchased it directly from your website. I think this is signed. Let me look. I love this. Watch your back, Chad Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of want to talk about the Wendigo, if that's okay, as a starting point, because growing up, this was always lore that people seem to be more familiar with when you live in the North or the Great Lakes region. They might not know exactly what it is. I do. I had a friend back in high school who for weeks talked about watching a horror movie that featured a Wendigo and thought it was the absolutely most terrifying thing he had ever watched in his life. And I know it's always been in the background of my head. And until I started reading your book, I I realized I did not know what a Wendigo truly was. And this book was difficult for you guys to write. You mentioned that it took nearly 20 years to sort of put this together. And you wrote that this was the most complex, culturally sensitive and puzzling legend of folklore that we have ever pursued. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Wendigo phenomena? I will do my best because as I wrote in the book that I've been studying Wendigo research and traveling the uh, country here in the U.S. and in Canada looking for legends of the Wendigo for nearly 25 years and I still feel like I know nothing about the legend. Right. That it's so mysterious. So the Wendigo, the legend of it began as a First Nation creature of the people of Canada, the First Nations, uh, the indigenous people. And they believed that this creature or spirit, whatever it was, could come in two forms. One, it could come in a flesh and blood creature, much like we might consider, you know, Bigfoot or uh, a moose, a bear, and it could devour you. And it was eight feet or as big as it wanted to be, very thin, skeletal, always seemed to be hungry for human flesh, Sometimes it was missing its own mouth and lips because when it couldn't eat prey, it would consume its own body. But even scarier for me is they believed that it could also come in its spirit form and possess you and slowly turn you into a Wendigo Mm. to the point where you'll be begging your friends and family to kill you so you do not become this hideous monster. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. That's why. That's why. As I, uh, that's why. As I, I was reading this book, I'm like, I, this thing is brutal. Um, there were a lot of different signs that you could be possessed by a Wendigo, and I thought a lot of the similar. There was a lot of similarities between what I'd say traditional possession, maybe what people think of as like you know Christian possession demons, yeah. um, and the Wendigo a little bit because people in your book you really found a lot of cases where people felt that they were affected physically by an actual Wendigo and creepy stuff happened to them. Anytime someone went sick in the community, 
the Wendigo was to blame, where if someone started exhibiting weird signs where they start what we might consider mental illness or depression in today's world, you know, people started to withdraw from the community. They started to become very quiet. They wouldn't eat. But what set that apart from your traditional depression or anxiety or mental illness is all of a sudden they started being overcome with this insatiable hunger for human flesh. And they started to see their friends and family, not as loved ones, but as tasty meat, like (laughs) beaver and moose game. And where the point they even started to say, I'm turning to a Wendigo. If you do not kill me, I'm going to devour all of you. Please kill me now. And the Wendigo was so frightening. We have cases of people that heard a Wendigo was in the area. They didn't see it. They didn't hear it. They just heard it was there, a rumor. And rather than go out and hunt for food or gather uh, nourishment, they starved in their lodging because they were too afraid to come out on the rumor that a Wendigo was around. When you went searching for Wendigos with for your book and really looking for folklore and research in the areas where a lot of the folklore has been told, did you go to anywhere that had a certain vibe or creepiness to it? There were many places. The one that stood out to me the most was when I was uh, with my colleague, Kevin Lee Nelson, and we were on the trail of Swift Runner, which if any of your listeners have heard the Wendigo story, they're probably familiar with Swift Runner's legend. It was back in the 1870s when Swift Runner, who lived in Alberta, Canada, uh, north of Edmonton, he was a, a Cree Indian, and he went crazy and ended up killing and devouring every single member of his family, claiming that the Wendigo possessed him. And before they took his life at the gallows, he believed he had turned Wendigo. But while we were trying to follow in his footsteps, it really hit me hard that even though it was just a a big wooded area, the wilds of Canada, much like we have here in the Midwest, but there was something different. It was primal there. It was unchanged for hundreds of years. And just staring at it some 150 years later, you can imagine what it was like back then, the the desolation, uh, the area, and how alone you would feel. And it really struck me as I was there of the, the terrible deeds, the dastardly murders that Swift Runner had done to his own family his children. And that really hit me in a way I wasn't expecting because throughout the years, I've traveled to places where serial killers have operated, mob hits, accidents, suicides, untimely deaths. I thought it was immune to it all. But when I was there where Swift Runner made his winter camp where he did uh, all the gruesome things, you know, I wasn't prepared for that. And it really stuck with me. Now, that kind of stuff's spooky when, when, horrible things have happened somewhere and you can kind of just feel it like it's just left in the land or is it just you know the feeling you get as a person you know know, as you're as you're saying this chad i'm thinking about this idea and you know i personally have been to a bunch of places where you know it's documented there was something really horrible that happened whatever shape or form it was um i don't know if if, if it may be a psychosis thing too where just knowing that in your mind what happened in that place and knowing that 
when I know as a, as myself as a person, I'm not capable of doing something horrible like whatever, right? Is is that kind of what puts the hook in you too? Do you think? I mean, I'm not discounting that there may be a, a a real energy about a place, but I'm just curious if it's if it's if it's an emotional thing, if it's a psychological thing too. I have no doubt in my case, it's all psychological that if I were to drive by there, I'd probably just think it was a beautiful area, not knowing the history, but knowing the background, knowing the details, I think that's what plays into it, that you start to, uh, you start to put yourself in the position of those victims where I've been to a lot of places where people had no idea the background and they thought it was a great place to be. And I would have too, if I hadn't known the background. So I don't know, maybe people who are sensitive or intuitive or mediums and the like would disagree with me because they can pick up on this stuff. But for me, you know, it's never anything psychic or I'm picking up on weird vibes. It's always just knowing the exact history of what took place. You'd be surprised. And it makes me think about just, you know, the neighborhood we're at here. And I, I like to ride my bike around this neighborhood. And I think about that when I'm riding sometimes. Every house I ride by, they're houses. They're nice houses. They're they're pretty houses. But I can guarantee you in a lot of those houses, you see these regular old houses, who knows what kind of horrible stuff. You know? Oh, I know. Well, just people dying. I mean, people just passing away, like leaving leaving their life, right? It's a, it's a traumatic thing in a house. And, like, who knows what happened even where we're at, for example, right now. Let's not think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, with the Wendigo too, one of the things I thought was spooky was people, when they start to feel that they are becoming a Wendigo, one of the warning signs is dreams and that if they're offered food in a dream and they take it and they believe it to be something like wild game and it's actually human flesh and they eat it, they're, they're screwed. Like you are a Wendigo, you're turning into a Wendigo. And I thought that was so spooky because so often in a lot of folklore, there is that temptation of taking the food, eating it, and then everything goes to hell after that. And also the other thing I thought was so spooky about this was that victims truly felt like as they were becoming a Wendigo, that their heart was turning to ice and freezing. And you mentioned in the book that people, I don't know if you found if there was actual autopsy evidence or if it was just kind of hearsay that people talked about but people claiming that when someone died that was a wendigo they opened them up and found that there there was ice around their heart oh great observation two things yes on the dreaming on a lot of cultures around the world especially years and decades and centuries ago you know the idea that the dream world was separate from the living world is a little bit different today in our modern world than it was back then. Both were of equal importance. So the dream world is maybe where a spirit animal came to you or other things um, happened. And it was just as important as the waking world. So the idea of somebody coming to you and offering you beaver or moose, and then it turns out to be human flesh, That was a a big warning sign because one of the ways in which you could become a Wendigo was the resorting to cannibalism. And we have a long history of these food things, as you mentioned. Fairy lore is full of people being fairy led to another realm and being offered wonderful food and drink. And if they take it, they'll never leave again. 
So the food idea is very prevalent with the Wendigo as well. And the idea of them finding ice in these people that they killed, um, we have to take them at their word for it because they said sometimes around the backbone it was encrusted in ice or the heart was completely filled with ice. And, of course, there were no autopsies done at that time. You're talking hundreds of miles from any settlement. Um, Most of these cultures had never seen a traditional doctor before. So the idea um, that they would do an autopsy after the death, uh, they were more interested in cremating the body because that was the only true way you could get rid of a Wendigo. You could kill it by other means, by cutting out its icy heart, decapitating it, you know, melting the icy heart by pouring hot tallow down its throat. Uh, Jack Fiddler, who was a, a Wendigo hunter, uh, he whipped a gentleman and cleaned him up. The man was going to turn to a Wendigo and complaining and yelling and screaming. And Jack Fiddler was a powerful shaman. And he came over with his whip and he started throwing the man on the ground and whipping him, saying, if you turn into a Wendigo, I'm going to kill you. I'm powerful enough to do it. And that was enough to cure the man. <laughs> Suddenly the Wendigo was gone and the man never had another episode. Hmm. So I take it at their word that these people knew what was going on. And when they looked into the bodies and found this, what appeared to be ice. I mean, we looked for any other medical condition that would make it appear to be ice around a heart. And we just could not find one. Hmm. That's what I wondered too. Like if there was something with, with like the spine, if some kind of strange thing could form around it or whatever, but yeah, I couldn't think of anything either. That's so spooky. That kind of stuff. Cause you're always like, well, what if, what if, that, what, you if know? Yeah. what if, what if, what uh, if, and then if you want to cure yourself uh, from a Wendigo taking you over, this one made me gag. Drinking hot animal fat is a remedy. Oh, God. Um, beef tallow. I think that's what it was, Chad. Uh, yes, tallow is an mm. animal fat. And you could – and again, a lot of people are today looking back at these things and what my colleague Kevin and I kind of described as white-splaining them. That <laughs> – <laughs> You know that today, on oh, today's Western world, we're so much more educated. We know these things. So it must have been just starvation. And they were drinking fat, which would make you feel better if you were starving. All the fat and nutrition and calories in that would uh, help improve your condition. But they really felt that it was the hot tallow that would uh, cure you only to a point. There were several cures of a Wendigo from... You could sacrifice dogs. Uh, some groups did that. Oh. Some went to the and were cured through religious healings of not of their own belief. A powerful shaman could kill, uh, cure you like Jack Fiddler did. And there were several others, but these were always thought to only work until the person fully transformed into a Wendigo. And then once it was a Wendigo, some believe you were on your own, that there was nothing you could do, where others still believe you could out-trick the Wendigo um, if you were brave enough or smart enough. There's even a story of a silver bullet working to kill a Wendigo, huh. obviously conflated with the werewolf legends that were brought over because, remember, this was a First Nation legend, without a doubt. But over the decades, more and more cultures made their way in from the Voyagers the French missionaries, the pioneers, they all brought their culture with 
and really mixed it in of the Wendigo lore. So you have this idea that you could kill it with a silver bullet, which when you're on the verge of starvation in the darkest, coldest winters you can ever imagine, food is nowhere, game is scarce, you're not carrying around silver bullets with you. You're looking for food for survival. Yeah. So the idea that they'd be shooting these things with a silver bullet seems a little strange, but that's the lore. Are there any similarities between Bigfoot and Wendigo? Often people say that Wendigo were nothing more or are nothing more than a, you know, a Sasquatch that went crazy right. and turned cannibal. But a lot of the cultures that believed in the Wendigo and experienced the Wendigo also knew of Bigfoot or Sasquatch as well. And they were completely different beings. In fact, some of the original lore of the Wendigo made it look like something you would never confuse for a Bigfoot. It was almost like a giant walking skeleton, uh, the embodiment of cold and winter. So very thin, looked like they're skeletal, much different from the big, broad shoulders, heavily muscled uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Um, And also it was said to have supernatural powers that if you heard the Wendigo, it would freeze you in your tracks. Uh, You'd be so frightened that you couldn't move and then it could easily consume you. So it had supernatural powers where some said it only walked in a straight line because it could, nothing could stop it. So why go out of its way when it can find the distance in a straight line? Whereas, you know, Bigfoot and Sasquatch were thought to be much different creatures, although sometimes they do get mixed up in the legends and folklore. Yeah, I could see that. I found it interesting, too, how the size of the Wendigo changed over the years and that there was talk about it being as tall as the treetops, like these giants. And it it made me think about how often in our past we talk about giants and so many different um, pieces of folklore out there talk about giants. And, you know, a lot of the stuff from early North America with the Smithsonian hiding the giant bodies and, you know, stuff like that. So it kind of made me think of that a little bit. Are there modern Wendigo stories, or is it something that has kind of dwindled over the years? Do people still feel that they can get possessed by something like this, that it's a real entity out there? Great question. Let me give you two examples. One, uh, a few years back, about five years ago, I was up in northern Minnesota near a reservation doing a lecture on mysterious creatures of Minnesota. And before the lecture, some tribal elders came up to me and said, we heard you're going to talk about a creature from the area. They wouldn't say its name because many cultures fear that even saying the name of something is enough to put you on its radar. That when you go looking for the weird, the weird will come looking for you. So they didn't say Wendigo. And they said, we would appreciate it if you would not talk about it, not mention it, completely avoid it. And I said, of course, I'm a guest. I won't talk about it at all. And the words had no sooner left my mouth than I could see their bodies start to relax. Their physical face uh, expression started to relax as though they were truly terrified that I was going to mention it and that would bring the creature to their area. So the belief is still strong among many. Also, I still get reports of people who encountered the Wendigo. And what I find so fascinating is sometimes 
And they don't know that's what they're seeing when they encounter it. It's not until they get home and start to Google trying to figure out what the heck they just spotted. And then they say, oh, it had to be a Wendigo. That's exactly what I saw. Yeah, that's not something I want to see either. The description of it, like that's the thing of nightmares. I mean, your book is nightmarish, the cover. Like, here, Scott, did yeah, you see this? I'm, yeah, I've seen it. Let me see it. Here, that's oh, terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. No. Oh, put I that away. I don't want to see that in the woods. <laughs> no, put that thing away. Well, uh, recently, just a, a few years back, uh, a couple brothers up in northern Wisconsin were at a traditional old historic uh, summer camp in cabins, and they were separated in different cabins because they're different ages, but both had a sighting of what they thought was the Wendigo, and while they saw this thing, which was tall, thin, and creepy in the woods, they got the overwhelming sense that if they didn't leave, this thing was going to kill them. And it was a almost an irrational fear, like they stepped into a zone of fear. Not like you're out hiking and you run across a bear or a moose and you think, this is scary. It wasn't that type of fear. It was really just down to the bone-chilling fear of just primal survival. That if they did not leave right then, this thing was going to kill them and there'd be nothing they could do. Uh, no. You, with how long you've been looking into the strange and unusual, what initially got you started down this path? I blame my interest on Wisconsin, my home state. <laughs> um, not only do we have the UFO capital of the world here, we have three of them. So three cities claim to be the UFO capital of the world. And I happen to grow up not too far from one of those. So when I was in high school, I heard of people seeing UFOs at the nearby town. So I started going and interviewing people. And I just started uh, studying psychology at college that fall. And that's what I was really interested in. I was interested in human perception and belief systems as to you know, why some people believe in all this stuff and others don't, or why some people encounter it and others don't. So I started presenting at college symposiums, research stuff, really boring stuff, statistical stuff. I always joke that you're glad you weren't in the audience there. <laughs> but in the audience, when I was presenting this stuff, people would come up and say, I need help. I think my home's haunted. Or I saw something in the woods I can't explain. Can you help me? So then I kind of shifted when I started graduate school. I shifted from looking at just only why people believe in this to what actually might be happening. And that's when I started going out and uh, doing more of the adventure stuff of being on-site investigations. I love that your background is in psychology and you can focus on that human perception um, and belief system so many people have. But like you said, I often it's, I truly feel people have seen something. It's not just all in our heads. Like these, our folklore, our ghost stories, our haunted houses, our monsters, I think they sometimes all exist for a reason beyond just what we think like their stuff it's, it exists which is why people talk about it if that makes any sense like there's something going on mm -hmm. and so i think there's a need to investigate that kind of stuff from a serious what would i say serious belief that there is like a i don't know i'm <laughs> Scott's staring at me weird as I babble. Come on, Amber, you can make it. You, you can make sure it. Words. Come on, you can make it. I Use your words. Bubble. 
No, just how people, I think people are quick to write off the supernatural as something in everyone's mind. Like a skeptic would be like, oh, that's just, you know, people, they saw a horror movie, so it's all in their head or it's a mental illness. And, but I think that things do happen in our world that we can't explain, whether someday physics will explain why we all experience something ghostly at a certain location in Gettysburg and explains that the quartz crystal actually generates something in our head that stimulates this idea and thought and whatever. Right now, we don't know what that is. So we, we create stories like To ghosts. try to explain yes, it. to try to explain it. But I think you can't ignore the phenomena and just say it doesn't exist. If my big ramble there makes any sense whatsoever. <laughs> A lot of people who contact me say, now, I don't believe in UFOs or ghosts or whatever, but this is what happened to me. So it runs the whole gamut, the whole spectrum. And I actually did my master's thesis on students' belief in the paranormal, where I was looking at differences that might explain why some people have experiences or beliefs like uh, gender or religiosity or education level or beliefs. Um, or um, And what I found is that, obviously, if somebody had an experience with something, they were more likely to believe it. Or, interestingly, if somebody they knew, like a close family, like grandma had a ghost story, or Uncle Bill's UFO sighting, that people were more likely to believe in the possibility of these things if they knew somebody who had experienced it. And most of the time, I think the media and the TV shows have portrayed these witnesses as kind of rural, uneducated, you know, believe anything, anything that goes bump in the yeah. night. They think it's a werewolf running in their backyard. But the overwhelming majority of people I've interviewed, thousands of them, are normal, rational, logical, down-to-earth people who have simply had something they can't explain happen to them. I find it interesting how many people will say, oh, yeah, I totally believe in ghosts, but I don't believe in UFOs. Like, what they choose to believe and not believe in within the realm of the supernatural is interesting in, uh, in and of itself. Because John Tenney, I don't know if you've ever met John Tenney, but he always says at the beginning of his presentations that people – he, he'll ask people, how many of you guys believe in ghosts? And, like, almost all of them raise their hand. How many people believe in UFOs? And, like, half of them raise their hand. And then how many people believe in Bigfoot? And, like, two people raise their hand. And he's like, you're here to tell me that you, <laughs> you believe less in the idea that on our big planet we just have an unfound animal out there, mammal, roaming the woods that has stayed hidden. That's not as – that's less believable than ghosts or UFOs. And then, of course, everyone laughs in the crowd. But it's true. It's it's interesting how people's perceptions work on that type of thing. And recently, what was just uh, NASA just released the images from that new space telescope. I was just, yeah, you read my mind. Yeah. Mm. And just looking out at, at those pictures and seeing all of it's those insanity. little it's galaxies. Insanity. And you're like, how can there not be something out there like there has to be more life so in wisconsin being a ufo hotspot, have you ever seen anything strange in the sky i haven't and i've been i've been searching uh for quite some time and i think you hit the nail on the head but not only do the general public have differing beliefs in these uh different uh phenomena but also researchers where i'm always amazed where uh some researchers only want to hear about a case that involves what they're working on. If yeah. they're interested in Bigfoot or UFOs or ghosts, but all of a sudden, if you're talking about a haunted area where people have seen UFOs as well, 
Some don't want anything to do with that. That's too weird. It can't be possible. So I think we're following the general public in some ways where, you know, for some researchers, it's only their small little area. And if anything falls out of that, they're not interested where I've always been interested in the entire thing because many times I'll be talking to somebody about a legend in the area, asking if they ever heard about it. And they'll say, no, but I, I heard about this Bigfoot over in the woods. So many times when you're looking for one thing, you get a different one. Yeah. And a lot of this stuff is connected. It's something we talk about a lot on our show with a lot of the guests we've had. Um, I know you know Zelia Edgar. We've had her on. I love her. Yeah, she's fantastic. And she is one of those people that loves to explore. It definitely inspired by Keel, John Keel, mm-hmm. um, loves to explore and talk about all of the different ways in which the paranormal subjects are connected. Uh, Steve Ward, who we've had on the show a lot, um, our buddy. Just moved. Who We found out moved, Steve, he recently moved Steve to Mount Pleasant. moved. He did his um, dream. He moved Point to, Pleasant. Mount, yeah. Mount Pleasant. <laughs> that's, that's, that's in Michigan. That's Michigan. Yeah. He moved to, yeah, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, yeah. home of the Mothman, his beloved mm-hmm. creature. And he is now working part-time with Jeff Wamsley at the Mothman Museum um, lives in walking distance. I, I love it. It's now, like, and not not to derail us too hard, but that's a guy. And, not, and I don't want to talk about talk about him all night. But that's a guy living his best life. Oh yeah. I mean, he's retired and he's just following. <laughs> just, he's following his true passion. Right. And to go that far with it. A, that's guts, that's determination, and but it's just him living his best life. I I, know. That's all I want to say about that. Now, Fantastic Chad, guy. Chad, do you do this full time? I do, and the story I heard about Steve Ward is that he was actually abducted by the Mothman and brought out there against his will, and he's still being held prisoner as a zombie-like creature at the museum. So if you see him, maybe pinch him to make sure he's really it's a very there. good idea. Yeah, that's funny. He'll love it. He'll love it. Pinch him. He'll, he'll think it's great. Chad Lewis said. Yeah. Yes. That's funny. So, There's rumors going around around Steve. Yeah, I'm going to bug him. When I first got interested in this field and it was just starting out, um, I was lucky enough to pick up uh, Jerome Clark's Unexplained book. And I think it came out in 1993. And it was one of those books where you could read about fairy folklore one night and then crop circles the next and then vampires the next. And I think Jerome did so much uh, benefit for those of us who were coming up at that time to really expand it from, you know, most people who say they're interested in the paranormal, they mean ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you know, when you read books like that, where every chapter is something different, it's just impossible not to be interested by it all. So, I mean, I think Zelia is following in the same footsteps as uh, Jerry and many others that looking at this big picture of what does this mean that we're experiencing all these things? Yeah, and that's what makes me happy that more people are doing that because when we, when I know when I got started and interested in this, there were the definite pockets. Like you were either a ghost person, you were a cryptid person, or you were a UFO hunter. There was like no yeah, blending. Comes, you know, it comes up a lot. I, <laughs> it does. You know, whether whether people we talk to bring it up or we bring it up, it comes up a lot these days, and you know, and we just keep falling back on the same point. You know, I, I I do believe personally, it's all there is some type of glue there. I call it the glue. There's some relation going on there. I think that's the, what the real the real challenge is for I, I think for, should be for a lot of people now is just how things are related, how all these things kind of work together, right, Amber? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <sighs> I would love to talk about the Van Meter Visitor because this is a story I honestly do not know much about. 
Um, and I and I heard about it from Steve Ward, who was like, I went to the Van Meter Festival. I'm like, what the hell? What? What is that? It's in Iowa. Where? <laughs> It's just, just totally clueless about Steve. it. And he would go on and on and on about yeah. it. But I watched a little clip of you. I don't know what TV show you were on, but you in the clip you were saying that you were surprised about the Van Meter visitor story once you started getting into the research. Could you share with our listeners what this story is about? I, I certainly was surprised because when I first discovered the old articles from the early 1900s, they were talking about a giant eight-foot bat-like creature terrorizing this small town of Van Meter, Iowa, about 20 minutes southwest of Des Moines. So when we went down there to see what we could dig up on our first visit, I really thought this is going to be fun, but it's going to be easy. It was a hoax. It had to be. This thing was said to have a horn on its head. It could project light out of its head. It could erase people's memories of what happened. So it had to be some gimmick or joke or hoax. And as soon as we got there and started digging, all of a sudden I thought, maybe there's more to this than first met the eye, where for five nights this town shot at this thing. They blasted it with everything they had, and they had no idea what was attacking them or uh, visiting their small little town. Again, eight-foot giant bat-like creature on downtown Van Meter, a town of 900 people. And it was just amazing. And as I'm still researching it now, you know, some decade and a half later, I'm still baffled by it. It just it doesn't make sense. There's nothing out there like it that, the, again, the creature was impervious to weapons. It released this weird odor and erased people's memories. I mean, it's just fantastic. I feel like it has so many similarities with UFO type phenomena, just with not being able to, I don't know, like a protective coating, like you can't shoot it. Like it just seems like something from another planet. Protective coating. Yeah, it's got a protective coating. You can't shoot it down. You're exactly right there. Absolutely. And um, it started out as a, a UFO sighting that the first thing to throw anyone off was a man was coming home late at night and he saw a ball of light hovering over one of the buildings a ufo and as he slowed down thinking it was an intruder or maybe a bank robber the light disappeared and then reappeared on the other side of the street on top of that building and then it hovered there for a few seconds and then vanished and he thought little of it the next day he started talking about it but that's when things started to really begin to get weird after that and if it was made up if the story was a hoax they were Decades ahead of where we know UFO research to be today, where, again, screen memories were present there, um, erasing memory, missing time, all this UFO stuff, which are are hallmarks of today's research, they were present in 1903, unheard of. So either the person made up the whole field of ufology or, (laughs) you know. They were uh, maybe a psychic and uh, dreaming from the future. I don't know, but it, it seems very strange. But the weirdest part of the case is after five nights of this harassment from the creature, it shows up on the fifth night, but this time it has a smaller version of itself with it, whether it was the female gender or maybe an offspring. And the newspaper said the townsfolk shot at it with everything they had, that 
they shot so many times they could have sunk the Spanish fleet. <laughs> but it had no effect. They just simply scurried back into this uh, abandoned coal mine. And that's where the story ends. Ugh. Like like a Hollywood cliffhanger. Ugh. Like what? We don't know if they killed it, if it's still there. Did it fly off and become the Mothman of Point Pleasant? Oh, I don't know. Right. It, just so frustrating. And it was never brought up again formally in town. Uh, it seems like the town just simply forgot about it. There was no, like 10 years later, somebody saying, hey, do you remember when that giant bat attacked our town? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> it was like it never even happened. Huh. So how did it get resurrected again? The story. I always say that the Van Meter visitor story just kind of drifted from the townsfolk. When we first went there, a few people were familiar with the story and the legends and they had heard of it. And, but most were not huh. even some of the old timers at, at that time had no idea. And what I think happened was, is that it shifted that the old abandoned coal mine was right next to a brick and tile factory that had been operating uh, during that time. That's where the posse of men gathered. And over the years that went out of business, but the the buildings, the remnants of the brick and tile factory were still there. They were in terrible shape and they were thought to be haunted because teenagers mostly would go out there and see weird shadowy things in the sky and see bricks being thrown by some unseen force. And they had no idea the visitor legend. So they blamed it on it being haunted. Hmm. So the area was always, uh, drifted into this realm of weirdness, but yet the explanation or the cause shifted over the years from a giant bat that could erase your memory to a haunted area. And I was fascinated the first time we went on the property, which is private property today, we were talking to the farmer whose family had owned it all the way since back in those days. And he said he grew up on the farm and this was this no nonsense Iowa farmer. You know, wasn't prone to flights of fancy. He wasn't reading Bud Hopkins at night. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just put it that way. But he said as a kid, he always was fearful where the old mine used to be, the entrance. He never wanted to go there, but he didn't know why. Just the feeling, as we were talking about earlier, just that sense that something wasn't quite right. And again, this was like the salt of the earth Iowa farmer that was you know, nowhere near believing in the paranormal. But I found that interesting that he always looked at the spot with a little hesitation. Cave entrances in general are spooky, especially abandoned ones. And you think about these life forms that could exist in caves where we can't get to easily and explore. And what if one one of these days one did happen to get out by accident, freaked out, and it was this Van Meter visitor And then just goes back in and yeah, who knows, could still be sitting Mm -hmm. there having raised like an entire family of little, little visitors down in the cave system and like be ready to just pop out at any moment. I, that kind of stuff is spooky because what is another what if, Yeah. like why couldn't life exist down there that we aren't aware of? Life adapts anywhere. When you go into mammoth caves, the fish don't have eyes. They don't need them, but they still exist. I mean, I think it. It's an easy one to put out there. We all know this. There's just so much of this planet, for example, that's just not been explored that can't be explored. We can't get to certain places, whether it's water or whether it's cave systems. There's so much we have not seen of this planet. And, yeah, 
the few things we have discovered, we've, we've discovered creatures that, that are mind-blowing, like you just said, creatures with no eyes, basically. They yeah. work on vibration. Now, you know, so um, that's one thing to think about with these things, too, is, <clears throat> I, you know, the supernatural interests me, like, any, like, like anybody who listens to this show, uh, but I think about the world around us, too, and think about the things we haven't explored that, that are very much real. They're very tangible. That you don't have to wonder about them, and we may not see them in our lifetimes. We may never see stuff. There may be things that are so close, so buried in the earth that just live down there that we'll never see something. We can't go that deep. I mean, there's so many millions of ideas about that. Uh, or the hollow just, earth theory. Well, yeah, like there's a not, whole. There's dinosaurs in there. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. That's good. I would, hey, I want to. Those are some things. I some out there theories and beliefs. I want to believe. I kind of like the hollow earth theory. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun. We'll play with dinosaurs. I'm with you there, too. I love it. And the idea that they released something was a theory even back in 1903 that because they were mining and it was a huge cooperation. I mean, hundreds of feet deep. They had tunnels full of mules and donkey teams down there. I mean, they were bringing out train car after train car of coal every day that one of the theories was that they just kind of released this thing. They stumbled upon it. And that's why it had a light on its head. Um, that, and that's why it always came out at night. And the only thing that seemed to spook it was when the train came by. Uh, it blew the whistle, and that seemed to spook it. And it started running on all fours and then floated off toward the direction of the old uh, coal mine. But that was one of the theories, like uh, the horror movie The Descent, if you've seen that. Kind of like there's something down there that mm. shouldn't be there. Mm. Did coal miners have a legend called the Tommyknockers? Yeah. And I don't I don't know what the legend is. Like, they would hear these sounds down there. I know Stephen King wrote a book about it. I never read that one. But mm-hmm. are you familiar with that legend? Yeah, the coal miners had a lot of legends, but obviously the ones of uh, weird noises, but also creatures down there. And they had their own lingo. They had their own belief of haunted tunnels mm-hmm. and cursed tunnels and that if uh, any of their colleagues died, that that's where they would not want to be, which was a common uh, happening back in those days. So someone could do an entire book on coal mine folklore. Maybe they have. I don't know. There has and, to be and something that out there. brings me kind of to the idea that I love all these areas that are kind of paranormal adjacent, where it's like, I would love to hear coal mine legends, but it's, you know, it's not strictly in the paranormal field, but it's close enough um that i love it i just did a a book on lumberjack creatures that the lumberjacks believed in yeah 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 like the jackalope and the hoop snake and the hodag where again it's not strictly supernatural but it's folklore with a paranormal bent and for a group of people that are out in the woods for as much as they are you kind of always wonder too like did they see something did they see some strange creature release something when they were tearing down, you know, a deep old forest? You know, who knows? And this was at the time when the forests were thought to be inexhaustible. Yeah. Anything could be there. Um, you know, the mountain gorilla was just officially discovered at that time. Yeah. So they're thinking, why couldn't there be this weird hoop snake when, you know, there's a lot of weird things out there? That's a creature that when you... Was what year was the mountain gorilla officially discovered? It wasn't all that long ago in the great scheme of things. I forget what year that was. Yeah, I think it was a 1903 yeah. or four, yeah. somewhere around that era. Yeah, 
Imagine going out into the forest looking for something, hearing these legends, this folklore about this. Like to what I, I don't know how they they described the gorilla at first, but it it would have to be human like, you know, just like how we describe Bigfoot in a weird way, and then being the first person to set eyes. First human to actually see that in the wild. I, I don't know. That's a trippy experience. And that's just another example of a creature that was part of lore. And oops, we found out it's real. And now they can go see it in the zoo. <laughs> another infamous case of white splaining. Mm-hmm. Where <laughs> the locals, they described it and said, this thing's real. We know about it. And then all of a sudden, it's not real until Western explorers come and document right. it, quote unquote. That, right. And you see that with a lot of uh, creatures that the indigenous people, the local people uh, that have been there for generations, they all know about it. It's not a big deal. It's not breaking news. But then all of a sudden, someone comes and discovers it and it becomes <laughs> big news. Exactly. I when with the Van Meter visitor, how was that story preserved? Was it in just old newspaper accounts? That's the only place it was okay. where I've never had a harder time digging up history of a place than I have in Van Meter. Um, most of the articles came from the Des Moines newspapers. They had several of them operating both in English and German at the time. But Apparently, Van Meter had a newspaper of that era, but nobody has ever seen a copy of it. Not just from that date or Uh. that year, but from the entire paper. Uh. Most of the historians, there are no photos of, you know, we don't know exactly where some of these buildings were back in 1903. And this wasn't like the 1500s in Europe where, okay, records are lost. This was 120 years ago. And nobody knows where some of the buildings were because the historical records aren't there. It's really perplexing that it's just amazing that I was expecting to go in and say, okay, bring out the big boxes of historical artifacts and let's look through the town maps and all the old photos. This will be fun. And they kind of looked at me like, what box are you thinking of? Have you been, I know the town now has uh, uh, the Van Meter, uh, like a festival based on the whole monster sighting, similar to uh, the Mothman Festival in uh, Point Point Pleasant. Pleasant. Have you been to that? I have. Um, I've been to everyone except one. I do the walking tours for the Visitor Days Festival. And what's brilliant about this festival is, one, it's free. um, And two, the town is still around 1,000 people. If anything, the downtown area has shrunk over the years. It used to have a few hotels and mini saloons. It doesn't have any of those now, but you can still walk the couple blocks and see, oh, this is the building where they shot out the front window of the bank because the bank manager saw the creature and got scared. Or this is the old brick and tile factory. So it has that, you don't need a great imagination because the buildings are still there and you can still literally walk the same footsteps that they did in 1903. Are you able to see the cave opening to the mine? No, the cave opening, uh, again, we don't know exactly when or how they closed it up, but they closed it up. And when I first went there and stood over where the mine entrance was, um, you wouldn't know. It's just grass. Okay. okay. And um, last year I did a program, uh, one of Josh Gates' programs. I don't know which one offhand. Um, but I was there uh, on that program, and they were 
digging up a little bit, trying to find the entrance Ooh. of the old abandoned coal mine. And people, not a month goes by where someone doesn't contact me saying, I want to dig up the old coal mine. Uh-huh. You know, what do I need to do? And <laughs> they don't realize it was probably completely flooded out now. You know, it's filled in. It would have been extremely dangerous. You probably couldn't even get in it if you found it. But yet, I would love to start digging. Yeah, just random people out there with what they want to start doing. Especially, I don't even know if that's on private property, like <laughs> where it's at. But And then there's, again, my what if, which is the theme of this episode, um, you release it again. <laughs> like, I'd be scared of that. Like, oh, maybe we should just let him live down there in peace. <laughs> and... I mean, it's fascinating when we look at these creatures, they tend to really like abandoned hidden places, which makes sense. If you were trying to hide out and not be discovered, you wouldn't hang out at the Target parking lot. <laughs> you know, so they're they're in these old abandoned buildings, these rural areas, these wooded, heavily wooded areas where they might be able to offer some protection of privacy for them. I want. I, now I have an image of like Mothman just hanging out in the Target oh, God, parking lot. <laughs> no, no, serious. I, I, I want think, a poster of this. That's what makes the most sense, though. Is you know these abandoned areas. Yeah. I mean, they're not occupied, and like you just said, Chad, they do offer some degree of protection, right? So I think that's that does what makes the most sense with these with the reclusiveness of these these creatures. We're still trying to find stuff out about. Same with ghosts. Where are ghosts? They're in the basement. They're in the attic. They're not in the Target parking they're lot. They're not either. in the Target parking <laughs> lot. <laughs> that's my new tagline. It's not in the Target parking lot. Um, I, well, I, I mean, want to discuss. Oh, sorry. Go, Scott. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I want to talk about your newest book, Paranormal Minnesota. I just got this the other day, so I've barely cracked it, but I've started thumbing through it, looking at all the great stories. There's monsters, there's legends, there's ghosts, there's haunted houses, there's phantom hitchhikers. What are some of the standout stories that you particularly like about Minnesota? Oh, uh, great. I love this. <laughs> and again, I just stole it from my friend, Jerry, Jerome Clark. Um, I remember uh, over the last few years, I've had the benefit of befriending him. And I, you know, every time we meet out and hang out, you know, it's just me sitting with my mouth open, listening to him tell story after story. His expertise is just unlimited. And, you know, it was, again, I told him, I want to do a book like you're unexplained where I'm adding all these things together, where, Uh, In Paranormal Minnesota, one night you could read about crop circles and the next about the devil moose, which and the devil moose is one of my favorites. It was in northern Minnesota in the early 1900s. The native people believed in this moose that was of gigantic proportions. Some say it was even a hodgepodge of other animals, like something out of Dr. Frankenstein's lab. And, And that it was a supernatural being that nothing should ever happen to it or mishap and misfortune will follow. So, of course, when the pioneers found out about it, they said, let's hunt it. And that's what they did. In the early 1900s, they gathered some hunting parties and went out into the thick Lake of the Woods area of Minnesota and tried to hunt for this devil moose. And (laughs) luckily, or maybe unluckily for them, they never found it. But there were numerous articles about People uh, searching, dozens of armed men uh, tracking through the woods, hunting for this devil moose, which they never found. And I had never heard of it until I was researching this book and came about it by a a weird circumstance where 
you know, a devil moose, just the name is awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I mean, imagine a t-shirt of the devil moose in a Target parking lot. <laughs> Or like that would be a heavy, like nice doom metal name, Devil Moose. Okay, wouldn't it? That's okay. a great it, it idea. Work. Someone's gonna steal it that Moose Devil. Moose Devil. You'd have Moose to, Devil. I think that you sounds gotta switch better. it up. Yeah. Moose Devil sounds better because you got it, like Mastodon. You got a um, Moose Devil. You got a bunch of other bands that are like epic animal names. Yeah, we'll get Moose that, Devil. Yeah, we'll we'll cut you in, Chad. If yeah. we get that we get that band going, we'll let you know. You could change your your. I've never liked the name of your band. I thought it sounds more punk, and you're you're like doom metal. You could change it right now. Okay, well, you can yeah, make it official. Let me let the guys know. <laughs> okay, Hang on. I'll let them know. Okay, Moose Devil. Moose <laughs> Devil. So go ahead. So I had the Moose Devil, and then yeah. there was also a case from early 1920s in Winona, Minnesota, which is along the Mississippi River, not far from the Wisconsin border, and they believed a vampire was terrorizing their town, and it began when this young woman, Frances Block, died, and. She had a lot of siblings, and they lived on the east end of Winona, which was a highly religious uh, area at that time and very superstitious from the old countries. And um, all of a sudden, the block children started dying one after another. And the neighbors started telling the father of all these children that the reason your family is dying is because your first daughter that died, she's now a vampire. And... She's to blame. And that was a belief back then in some cultures where the first sibling to die would act like some uh, death siren Mm. and invite their siblings to join them in death. Or, you know, vampires would always attack the ones they knew best, that they loved best, their friends and family. So uh, he was down to his last son. Uh, Four or five of his sons had died and his last son was really ill. So the neighbor said, you can stop this. All you need to do is go out to the graveyard, dig up your daughter, and chop off her head. Oh, oh dear Lord. And bury it separately from the rest of the body. So he did it. Oh, God. Now, oh. He went out to the, so he goes out to the graveyard. He hires a neighbor uh, for a few dollars to come with him. I don't oh. know what that description was like. Yeah, I wonder how he yeah. sold that one. How yeah. do you sell that? But so the neighbor goes out there, they dig up the the daughter and they found that her body was in terrible condition. And the only thing they could see was there was a white cross indented onto her chin, which was a common protection against vampires during that time to put a little cross on the the chin or the face of the, the deceased. So they thought there's no way she's a vampire. She's in such terrible conditions. We'll rebury her. But the next day, the sun took another turn for the worse. So they went back to the graveyard a second time and this time dug up his first son to die. And they were going to do the same thing to him. But again, he was in such terrible conditions uh, that they chickened out and just reburied him. And the police found out about it. So the police go out there and redig up the body of this woman to make sure he had not desecrated the body. And he hadn't. And the funny thing was, is that in 1921 in Winona, there was no law saying you couldn't dig up a body. I was just going to say, not to cut you off, Chad, but so, yeah, no problem for you exhuming the body. But as long as you don't do anything or desecrate the body, as you said, you, you, there's no law against that. Basically, You're, am I, That's what you just said, right? 
yep, they talked with the city attorneys and the state attorneys, and they had no laws. Again, as long as you didn't uh, molest the body in any means, you were free to dig up as many graves as you wanted. Now, your listeners shouldn't take my advice on this today. <laughs> Because it's probably a lot different wherever you're listening from. But back then, they didn't charge him. And the the terrible thing, uh, the end of the story was that his last son ended up dying a few days later because he did not go through the ritual or he was already sick and just died of, you know, uh, disease, but whichever way you want to look at it. But the house is still there. And when I never heard of it until many, many decades later, and I have in-laws that live in Winona. They had never heard of it. And um, when I went there with my colleague, Kevin Nelson, again, we started interviewing some of the employees of the cemetery and they've had paranormal experiences as well. They had never heard of the vampire legend, but again, Mm. how we're talking about these things being portals or window areas, they had a bunch of haunted experiences that they didn't even want to talk about. Huh? That's so trippy. <sighs> Again, like when we just mentioned the window, it made me think of Keel. Yeah. And, and then also how people interpret things. Like they have these haunting experiences. Someone else has a cryptid experience all in the same spot. And, and just the different interpretations. Uh, when it, uh, There's another story in here. The mysterious crop circles of Faustin, if I'm saying that right. Faustin, Faustin. Um, ah, Faustin. Faustin. But it's Minnesota, so you wouldn't say it like 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 we were Boston. in Boston. No, you know I don't even want to no. try to do that. No. I'll get I'll get beat up by somebody. And, and there's a picture of you checking out and measuring the formation. And I'm kind of curious about this story because I one th- I am so skeptical of crop circles because you hear so often about people out there with their little boards making them themselves. Mm-hmm. So what is up with this big you know you and this picture and this story? So yeah, it is Faustin. Okay, and, Faustin. Uh, in right. 2008, uh, some. Uh, circles or formations appeared in a field and then they appeared in another field nearby a day or so later and by the time i was living in wisconsin at that time and by the time i got there a few days later uh, i don't know how many dozens of other uh, legend trippers and just curious sight seekers were there walking through it so although i was taking soil samples and crop samples and measurements you know, it was basically a crime scene that many people had been over all, all the time. Yeah. So, um, but what's interesting is that uh, the owner of the land reported that the night before these things were discovered, um, that his cattle was acting very strange. They were acting uh, weird. And again, it's cattle. They're not going to tell you what they're doing, but you know, he noticed he's a, a rancher and noticed their behavior and thought it was abnormal. And the next day, these formations appear. And then uh, several years later, I'm doing a program in that area, not on the crop circles, but a gentleman came up to me and said that uh, the day those were discovered early in the morning, late at night, he was out walking uh, as he likes to walk in the, the early, early cool mornings by himself. And he saw this weird orange uh, triangle type craft Mm. hovering over the area where the crop formations were found. And we believe that the second set of formations were probably a copycat. And that happens quite a bit when some formations are found. Um, Oftentimes, somebody will come out and make one right next to it or across the street. But this was 2008. And I was just having this 
conversation with some colleagues the other day about you never hear of crop circles anymore. You know, what happened yeah, to them? It used to be the rage in the 1990s and early 2000s. And it's like, it's been several years since I've even had anyone contact me about one. I feel like they occasionally show, I'll see a story about one showing up in Great Britain or something. And then it just looks too perfect. Where I'm like, I ah, know some, someone made that. Yeah. Like, I, or not, or not. Why am I doubting it? You know, but when you guys did, did anyone take any soil samples from the original one you uh, were at? Did anything seem weird or off? Well, we sent in our samples at the time I was sending my stuff to BLT research, Nancy Talbot, who was running the crop circle research and Dr. Levengood would do all the scientific analysis on the samples. And um, I don't recall right off the bat what they found is it's on their website. I know it's uh, again, it's um, very detailed uh, research, but nothing seemed out of the ordinary to me now. But then again, you know, what is supposed to be where I've had many people come to crop formations and some people get sick like they're going to vomit and throw up. They don't want to be there where others think it's more of a spiritual place where they pick up on, they almost meditate and pick up on this energy, if you will, hmm. neither of which I experienced. And I've been to maybe a, a dozen formations throughout the Midwest in my time. And, you know, none of them have struck me as anything weirder than just formations in the, in the plants. I like to ask this question of people who have pursued the supernatural for a long time. Have your beliefs or theories changed in any way since you first got involved? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you guys are a bit different. But when I got involved, like a lot of people, I think, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to solve this case and that case. And <laughs> exactly what we thought. Out. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And for me, early on, I realized I wasn't going to be the one to do that. So very early in my research, I really transferred all that energy to the folklore of all these things, the adventure of it, going there, interviewing witnesses, taking the back roads, hitting these spots, uh, you know, seeing it all as an adventure and the folklore of what these stories mean, where I think a lot of my colleagues who got involved when I did, they burned out very quickly because a lot of the time when you're at these places, nothing happens. Yeah. You know, it's not the sexiness that they show on TV shows where things are flying around and people are speaking in tongues. You know, it's a lot of, if you look at it one way, it's a lot of boring, tedious research. So yeah. I transferred early on to the idea that uh, whether these things are real or not, I'm going to see it as an adventure and kind of explore it from that angle versus trying to solve or prove or disprove. That doesn't mean if I get a, a case where it was said a man, you know, murdered his family out in the barn that you don't look into it. You try to find sort fact from fiction. But at some point for me, it all just becomes a bigger part of the story. Well, and I think it shows a true passion for the subject when you've stuck with it for as long as you have and an adapt and change along with it. So we want to thank you for chatting with us on thank this you, show. Chad. Thanks so much. Uh, we went all over the place, which we love to do. My yeah. brain stopped a few times, which it normally does. And we had a lot of fun chatting with you about all of your books. Where can people find more about you? Where can they get your books? All that good stuff. 
best place is just my website, Chad Lewis Research, or think of the weirdest legend you can think of. Head out there, and that's probably where you'll find me. Ghostly Talk! <laughs> Did you ever